WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is Impact's one-hour discussion of news, events, and organizations within MSU's community. And now, this week's Exposure. Good morning, everyone. It is Stephanie here on Exposure, and today we have the opportunity to talk to some people from game development here at MSU. So welcome, guys. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you. So how did you guys get involved with the game design programs at MSU? Uh, I could probably start with that. Uh, I've always wanted to work in games, uh, probably since like high school. Uh, I, I wanted to do like concept art. I've been doing a lot of painting and drawing throughout high school. And, and it just came down to like where I was applying for schools. I found out that MSU had uh, one of the top 10 game development programs in the country. Uh, and so I found out, you know, it's a really great program here. And a lot of my family went to MSU and I kind of got involved with things like uh, SpartaSoft, the game design club on campus, and just went from there. I actually already graduated from the program. So I, I can say without a doubt, it was the right decision to make. I, game dev at MSU is really great. So. For the rest of you, how did you get involved with the game design programs here at MSU? Um, I can go next. So um, I'm actually a graduate student. I did my undergraduate at Texas A&M University, and I was researching graduate schools. I was looking for the top 25 online, and Michigan State was always, like, in the top 10. And I'd never been to Michigan. only knew Michigan State from football. So I was like, okay, sure, I'll just apply here. And I got in, and I came off, like, a gut feeling, and I've been – here like since for the last two years and i love it here so that's kind of how i got involved here awesome yeah i actually um started at university of iowa with an electrical engineering degree um or at least chasing one and uh i kind of reevaluated what i wanted to do decided i actually wanted to go into games uh and computer science in general um so i looked up good schools for it found msu applied and then got in and just kind of worked my way towards the, the game dev minor so yeah 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 i'm from wyoming uh go pokes but <laughs> I was looking to go out of state and stumbled on MSU and I was actually browsing through some of the classes I could be taking and they really piqued my interest and then I looked into it more and got into it when I got here and kind of same story just fell right in. So with that like what role do you play in actually creating these games? And George and I are programmers. Yeah I'm a 3D artist so I, and I mostly do like character creature work. Yeah I'm a designer by Specialized in like level design, so like building the world and stuff around the player to, to play in. That's awesome. And how does that work? So at the beginning of the semester, I'm assuming you each have different classes. So how does one get super involved and how does that yeah. process work? I, I could probably talk about just like the program uh, overall. So the, the game de development minor at MSU is through the College of Communication Arts and Sciences. And it's a four semester course, uh, four semester track where you will take four classes um, with the same cohort, so about 40 students, mm -hmm. uh, and you generally work on teams to make uh, a variety of projects ranging in scope from like small two, three-week projects to full semester projects. So you'll start out just learning the basics on small teams, just how to collaborate. Like if you're an artist, how do I talk to a programmer? If I'm a designer, how do I talk to my artists to make sure all the pieces are coming together? And as you move along in the program, you get to know the people around you a lot better, and you also make better projects with a longer time scale mm -hmm. um, and students apply for the program generally at the end of their sophomore year uh, and we bring them in for their junior and senior year yeah and then are all of you a part of SpartaSoft 
I was the president last year. <laughs> I'm a member. Yeah, I'm a member. I'm not. But so, <laughs> how does that collab with your minor, and how does that relationship work? Spartasoft is a great resource for people who are super interested in getting into the game development minor. Uh, it really focuses on kind of that onboarding process of, hey, you don't know anything right now, but we're here to help you get kind of your sea legs with the whole process. So you don't need to have any experience coming into Spartasoft. Um, it meets generally every Thursdays, I think, right now mm -hmm. in Communication Arts and Sciences, room 154. And it uh, just talks about different topics every week. They do events on weekends where you'll make games. And uh, it's actually one of the best places to put your foot in the door with trying to get into the game dev minor because that's uh, a resource that a lot of the faculty actually talks to the leadership at SpartaSoft and say, hey, do you notice anybody standing out? Is anybody you know putting in that extra effort to be at all the events or really showing an affinity for it? And it's a, it's a great learning resource as well as a great way to find your way to the actual minor. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys actually generally do work in the gel lab in Comarts, right? Mm -hmm, correct. So that's a beautiful little room there. What does your um, typical day look like when you are in there? Um, a lot of collabor collaboration with other people, which is awesome. Um, right now I'm working with Dave on a game, and uh, we just go in every morning, work together, uh, talk a lot to solve these different problems that we come across. Um, we've been having to rework a lot of code, which has been interesting because previously uh, – throughout our entire experience has been a lot of like producing code and like making our own. Mm -hmm. So it's been really good to see what other people have done and learn from it and like correct mistakes too. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. We're all kind of packed in the same area so I can just swivel around and talk to George. He can do the same, a uh, really great area for collaboration for sure. Absolutely. And what are some of your projects specifically that you guys are currently working on? So right now, Dave and I are working on a project for MSU FCU. Uh, it's called Island Saver. Uh, it should be in the App Store by the end of the month, hopefully. Hopefully next week. Yeah, yeah. Um, and right now, it's an uh, endless runner game. Uh, you unlock different monsters uh, as you progress, and the way you unlock them is by investing your currency that you collect in the runner, uh, and then it you gain interest from it, and it unlocks the monsters faster. So it's uh, it's aimed toward 10 to 13-year-olds. Mm -hmm. Middle uh, school aged. Yeah, right. in order to uh, teach them uh, financial literacy. And the Gel app has a lot of projects going on mm -hmm. simultaneously. Um, I'm actually a part of a team working on a game called Plunder Panic, which is kind of a showpiece that started out as a gel project. Uh, we made it for the Traverse City Film Festival two years ago, mm -hmm. um, and it kind of spiraled out from there. It, it gained a lot of popularity and a lot of traction in all the events we took it to. Um, and now we're working on developing it for the Nintendo Switch and to bring it to like Steam um, and other you know distribution methods. So I'm I'm a part of making the art for uh, more of an entertainment game just for general release, and that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, what I've been working on. So we just released a project called When Rivers Were Trails. It's actually available online right now and on the iTunes App Store. We're also trying to get it out to uh, Google Play. And pretty much it's about how you play as a Native American um, around, I think, around 1800s, trying to go from the north to the west coast. And you kind of go, like, you know, different different venues. So you try to, like, you know, heal yourself, try to figure out different problems. So it's kind of like an RPG, but like a 2D uh, a 2D. Uh, click an adventure game and my role with that one i came out a little bit late so i was like what's called a qa tester so i pretty much just play the game over and over and over until i break things which has is actually like really really useful people gotta realize like qa testers like kind of like save game dev because you can make all these things and then it's like okay now let's have someone play it and the guy's like hey there are like these 10 things here that 
like completely break the game. Like I get too much of this resource and the game that stops and stuff like that. So that was pretty much my, my role for that project. But yeah, we have it up online. We have it shown at a couple of festivals and some conferences. So it's been going pretty well. And what are some of the biggest challenges you guys have when creating a game? Because there's a lot of collaboration, you know, there's lots of processes you have to go through. So what is one of the biggest challenges you've had? Miscommunication. Um, <laughs> sometimes, like, you'll tell somebody, hey, let's do this thing. And then someone has different, might take the wrong way. Like, actually, for our last class of the game, Death Minder, the Capstone, our game idea we had, like, when we had it in the beginning, and all eight of us had, like, different ideas, so we all, all were kind of, like, doing different things. So we all had to come together, like, in the first couple of weeks and be like, all right, guys, so what are we making? So, yeah, miscommunication can definitely be a pretty big, big issue that I've seen that happen. So you just have to catch it when it when it happens. Yeah, there's never there's never a problem that's been caused by talking too much about yes. what your yep. plan is. Um, I think time management is a big part of game oh, development. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even in the actual, like, industry of game development, uh, you know, big companies have issues with like crunch time where you're coming down to the end of a project and you're pulling those all-nighters and things that uh, probably aren't the healthiest but uh, we we like to uh, emphasize scoping projects down to make sure they're attainable because there's a lot of freedom in the game design program to work on what you want to work on so you have to know what is within your limits um, how do we work within scope so that we don't end up crunching on a bunch of stuff at the very end when inevitably we can't get all the features we want and are there project managers that help oversee all of that? We see a couple mm-hmm. producer Usually. type roles roll yeah. through. It's it's like it, I think it's a bit rarer than other positions. Yeah, usually so, usually it's someone who just happens to step up during their part, team in the project and kind of like take over and be like, okay, guys, we gotta do this, this, and this. I've had experience with doing that sometimes for my project, so it's like we're always like you know on the good track, and that way we're not trying to crunch like you know half the game a day before it's due. Yeah, for sure. And what is one of the best things you've learned from being a part of this? Teamwork is key, for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that you learn a lot about working with a specific group of people uh, because you start with the same people that you end with for the most part. Uh, It's one class of like 50 people maybe. And uh, you work with them all throughout the next two years. So you really learn who they are, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, and uh, how to capitalize on that. And... uh, you end up like kind of getting to choose your teams in the future too, which is really interesting because you'll see some really cool team compositions and people come together knowing strengths and weaknesses and what they want to focus on and what kind of a cool game they can make uh, and who they need for it. Yeah, I, th- I think soft skills is a huge part of yeah. game development. It's not just can you make what we want to make. It's also are you going to do well with the team and can you uh, work well to collaborate and make those compromises to make sure you get the best possible product. So I think learning about... Uh, those soft skills, the collaboration aspect has to be probably one of the most beneficial parts of the program. Definitely. Yeah, I would say that for me is um, getting to know like people and understanding how they work because some people you can give them a task and they'll just go do it and you don't have to ask for them like again, but some people have to like kind of edge on like, hey, how's that thing been going actually about for the last couple of days? So I would definitely say for me, figuring out like who a person is and how they work and what I can do to push them to like, you know, get the results that the whole team wants to benefit the project. Yeah, I definitely think that's something that people forget about. You know, you get assigned work, and you're like, yeah, we'll just do it. But there are the skills where you need to collaborate with people and work well with others. Um, just to remind all of our listeners out there, this is WDBM East Lansing. I'm Stephanie here on Exposure, and today we are talking about game development here at MSU. So what is one of your best experiences or the best part of being a part of 
game design or the Sparta Soft, anything involved with that. I'd say it's the really cool games that you get to make during it, mm -hmm. and it's a blast. Uh, I don't see as any of those classes as work. I mean, I just mm -hmm. go in and I have fun. If I want to code something and program something, make something happen, then I just do it. Um, and you have a lot of eager people working with you. Uh, it's not like other classes that you'll have team projects in uh, where people will not necessarily, ne not necessarily put it all, their all into it. Mm -hmm. Everyone in the game design minor, for the most part, is really interested in designing games. Mm -hmm. So you get a really a lot of passionate people coming together and making really cool things. Yeah, it's one of the best things about game development in general is just watching someone play your game and seeing like the smile on their face and how much fun they're having with it, and just knowing like you helped make that happen is a cool feeling. Yeah, kind of going off of that. Uh, like I said, I've been working on Plunder Panic. Uh, through the gel lab and we had the opportunity to take that to a lot of different events we actually went to uh pax east in boston uh not this past it was last year uh and it was a great experience because we got an actual uh floor space at the indie mega booth so it's a whole bunch of other independent games developers showing off their products so all these people who are massively massively dedicated and to making games their their livelihood and we were right there next to them talking to them um, and I got to meet people that worked on games that I love, uh, and they got to step aside and see what I've been working on. And uh, just being around other motivational people, motivated people in the industry is really awesome. And I don't think I would have had an opportunity like that if I didn't come to MSU specifically. Yeah, going off of what David said, um, for me, definitely is the fact I've been going to school here for the last year and a half, two years, and I never feel like I'm going to class. Like, all the projects I do, it doesn't feel like classwork. It just feels like stuff that I love working on. And for me, like when someone's playing, because sometimes when you work on the project, you kind of be like, oh my God, I've been doing this like for so long. But then when you see someone play it and you see how happy you are, it's like, oh, that's so cool. Your heart kind of like fills up like, oh yes, they, they're like, they're having fun with it. And that's what we want. And there's someone to play our games and just have fun with it. Building off that, it's actually really cool too. Sometimes people will play your game and find a completely different way to like solve the problem or like play your game, and you can build off of it. Mm -hmm. So it really makes for some interesting combinations. Yeah, because you can definitely learn from the people that are playing your game, and that's a fun part that people don't definitely. always think about yeah. too. Mm -hmm. um, it is awesome that you guys are making sure that your games are benefiting others in a sense. You know, you, that's the whole point of a game. Mm -hmm. So talking of games, what is one of your favorites? <laughs> I guess I'll start Bloodborne, hands down. It's a good choice. Why is that? Uh, love the art style, love the theme. I like the developer from Software. I think it's one of their best games, probably their best game. Um, the way the story works, uh, it's vague enough, but it's still complete. And the gameplay, of course, is awesome. So, Yeah, I think y'all know my favorite. It's the new God of War <laughs> that came out during the summer. Great game. I play that game like crazy. I love throwing, like, they have an axe mechanic where you throw it and, like, it comes back to you and hits everything. I actually gave a talk about it in Sparasoft, and people were like, man, you were really passionate about that axe. I'm like, yeah, because it's so much fun. So, <laughs> definitely the new God of War that came out this summer is one of my favorites right now. For me, it has to be uh, Doom from 2016. I've, I've just been recently hopping back into it, and that is, like, my favorite game of all time. It is like one of the most cathartic experiences to play that game. And I'm a huge monster person. I love, uh, you know, horror movies and just creature design in general. And that's the entirety of that game is just awesome creature design and great mechanics and just great game feel. So I, I, I end up spending my nights like, oh, I'm, I'm stressed out from the day and I'm, I'm worn out. And then I can sit down and play Doom and just like feel instantly better. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, Uncharted 3 for me. Not only is that a great game, but I just have so much nostalgia for it 
uh, you know, it always brings me back to just like sitting down and playing with my little brother. Uh, so brings back the good times, I guess. That's awesome. So how does this help your professional development? I mean, besides actually getting to create games, how do you see using this experience in your future, whether it is in a career or just in life in general? Um, well, hopefully making the games, if we end up going into the actual field, that'll help obviously a ton. Uh, getting hands-on experience is something that's kind of hard to do in the game design field. So it's a really good opportunity at MSU. And aside from the actual game uh, design field, just working with people. I think that working with people for this long, over this long period of time, mm -hmm. it's almost like you're having a job for two years, mm -hmm. uh, being yeah. able to work with the same people over and over. Um, so it's really helpful for teamwork skills. And Another big part of it is just how small the games industry actually is. Yeah. Uh, we have some fantastic faculty members here, and then your uh, friends that you're working through the actual program with, they will become your coworkers in the industry. They're going to be those people who are there trying to help you get a job and get connected because I know friends uh, from when I went through the program who are out in the industry. I have a, a friend who's working on Borderlands 3 right now, and that announcement just dropped, and everyone went crazy, and I saw... Uh, they showed a picture of just like the whole studio and there he was. I'm like, yeah. I know that guy. And wow. just having those connections is a massive part of it because it's, it is how good you are, how well you can perform, but it's also who, you know. Yeah. Um, so we, we have to be thankful for people like uh, Jeremy Bond and Ricardo Guamares and Andrew Dennis, because they're all massively connected people with great ability that can really provide us with a great program here. Yeah, we actually went um, a couple weeks ago, went on the West Coast trip where, like, the faculty takes a small amount of us to go to, to L.A. to visit game studios. And we visited, like, about 11 to 12. And literally, it's every person who was, every person, like, every studio, they had a person who knew our professor, Jeremy Bond. And it's like, man, like, Jeremy literally feels like he knows everybody. So a lot of it is, like, who you know. And a lot mm -hmm. of times, like, the people who are your friends, like, in industry, they can be the ones to help you land a job within a, within a certain company. So... Yeah. It, was, it was almost something you could take bets on, on which person was going to hug Jeremy when he walked into the door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, for real, though, yeah. All right. So for those that are interested in game design, how would you encourage them to get involved? Go to Spartasoft. Go to Spartasoft, yeah. Go, go to Spartasoft. yeah. yeah um, definitely. Go to Spartasoft and talk to either faculty members or other students in the program because everybody there is ready and willing to help you yeah. uh they're because everybody knows how passionate they are to make games so they're ready to bring other people on uh so whether you want to do programming or if you want to do art if you want to do design there's somebody you can talk to that will set you on the right path um they'll give you the things you, you know you should explore and uh go to spartasoft <laughs> <laughs> yeah no for like definitely because uh, one thing about people who are in game dev they are like always ready to help you like even people who are in industry like i know people who work at big time studios that like I can email and ask them help on like my resume, my portfolio or like advice and stuff like that. So people in game dev, like they are willing to help you. Like if you seek them out, like they'll do all they can, like with their ability. Yeah. Don't be afraid to make connections. Um, really like show that you're passionate about it or that you're interested in it at least because I mean, that's the best way to get involved. Uh, people notice it. It really makes a big impact. Um, and I know that, it's mainly freshmen and sophomores that are looking into it because mm -hmm. by junior year, it's almost a little bit too late sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, so like, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and, and really chase it. Could a junior or senior join? Yeah, definitely. We've, they had, definitely sure, yeah. Yeah. We've had people go, come through as uh, you know, junior or senior and even do like a fifth year or something to finish up the program. It is yeah. a four course program. So you need to do all four of the courses to actually complete the minor, but we have yeah. people that are older or younger. We've had 
people that are graduated from college nathan is a graduate student <laughs> yeah. going through um but yeah that's definitely a possibility and if people are interested in getting involved with SpartaSoft, where can they find you guys it's generally in communication arts and sciences on thursday evenings around seven o'clock uh six thirty seven yeah mm -hmm. that's room 154 yeah. Do Conference. you guys have a website or social media of some sort? There's a Facebook. Uh, there's also a Discord channel. Uh, if you talk to some people in the game dev program, they can probably get you hooked up with the right uh, connections and or check out the Facebook, and I'm sure you can find your way there. Yeah. And that Facebook page is? Spartasoft, Spartasoft? MSU. I, so. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Most right. likely. I know we also have, like I think, game.msu. I can't remember. We have like our own game development website as well for like MSU. I can't think of it. Gamedev.msu.edu. Yeah, I mm -hmm. think so, yeah. That's where it has like Spartasoft, the faculty, and all type of things. So you can definitely get into contact with people there. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming in. Is there anything else you want to say to our listeners about game development in general? Yes, no, maybe. Try it out. You should you should hang out with us because it's a good time and we make really cool stuff. Yeah, I would say like if you it's I would definitely tell people like it's that type of field where if you love like if you love it you want to do it all the time but if you don't it can be pretty hard so make sure if you want to pursue game dev make sure something that you really really want to do because if it's not then it can burn you out pretty quick but I know we all love it so that's why we're still here. All right, well. Sure. You are interested at all? You can check out their Facebook page at spartasoft.msu, and otherwise, just you know, talk to our students at Com Arts. But thank you guys for coming in. Thank you so thank much. You Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Budu and Daniel Puentes. We're thrilled to have Sarah Ayub with us here today. Sarah, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm a graduate student at the National Cyclotron Laboratory at MSU, National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory. I am getting my PhD in nuclear physics, specifically nuclear astrophysics. And I'm an experimental physicist, which means that instead of your idea of a physicist sitting down, scribbling equations and solving things, I'm more doing things with my hands. I'm building things, testing things. So that's basically what I do. You talked about how you build things. Can you give us a couple of examples of previous projects that you worked on at the Cyclotron Lab? So the biggest project I'm working on right now is called SACAR. It's the separator for capture reactions. It's kind of like a beamline. If you've ever taken a tour of the NSCL or FRIB, you can see that it's a collection of magnets and vacuum systems. And what I've been building so, for example, we start by building the actual vacuum system itself. So you can imagine just a bunch of pipes connected to turbo pumps, and we have to just pump down the entire pipeline so that there's vacuum inside those pipes. So that is a little bit more difficult than you would imagine. We spend an extended amount of time trying to get vacuum in our system, so then we're just assembling it, trying to make sure there are no leaks. If there are leaks, it takes a while to find them. So this is one example of something that we build. And then the actual design in, in my project, the actual design of the separator wasn't my design myself, but we've been assembling it. And so we end up building a lot of the components together and testing them, make sure that they all work together. That sounds really great, but I was wondering if we could please take a step back over here. You mentioned a beamline, and some children that are listening and other people might not understand what a beamline is. Can you please explain a little bit about that? So one way I like to imagine the cyclotron is just imagine a flowing river. 
And you know how the water in the river is just flowing inside um, a body of land under it. So imagine that land is actually a pipe, just like the pipes that the water in your house runs through. So imagine that pipe starting from a source where we have particles coming in instead of a river. So imagine like a laser beam, the lasers you play with with your cat, for example. Imagine that going up through a pipe and flowing like a river and kind of bending left and right, depending on where you want it to go. But that laser has to be somewhere where there's no particles in the air, so it has to be under vacuum. So that's what we call a beam line under vacuum. So it's like a system where these laser particles, laser-looking particles, flow through and go to certain places where we run our experiments. Why does the beam line have to be under a vacuum in the first place? Well, we are studying some fundamental reactions that these particles are having with very specific things. And the actual atmosphere around you, while you might not see anything in it, there's a lot of particles around you that are so small that your eye can't see them. But small particles would actually see them because they're the same size and they would end up hitting so many things and we would just lose our entire beam within the first two seconds of emitting it. So we want to make sure that it gets transported from the beginning all the way down and that is actually like several kilometers length. So what does this beam do? What do you guys do with the beam? So that actually depends on who you ask in the lab. So there are kind of two separate things you can do with it. One is called a high-energy study, and one is more low-energy study. So the difference between those two is that you can imagine if you throw two things at each other with a lot of force, it's going to break it. But if you try to slowly push them together, it's sort of going, they're, imagine Play-Doh, they're going to gonna stick together. So those are the two different things you can do with a beam of particles. So... Some people, like my friends, work on high-energy studies where they actually shoot these particles on some target. It depends on what they want to study, made of different things, and then they, they break apart the nuclei that, uh, of these particles that they're shooting. And when they do that, they can learn more things about the structure of the nuclei. Well, what my group does is we work at lower energy where we want, instead of breaking them, to fuse them together. So, for example, the device I'm working on will add a proton. So if you go back to uh, high school chemistry... You remember that the atom is made of an electron orbiting a nucleus made of protons and neutrons. So what we study is just the nucleus, so just the protons and neutrons. And what I'm studying is how we can add a proton to an already existing nucleus. So that makes up a whole new element. So we're basically creating new elements using a target. And at low energies, when it hits it, you form something new. So for example... One experiment we're planning to do next year is to get a neon beam. So neon is something you've all heard of and make it hit a gas of hydrogen. So that's made of one proton. So once it hits it, it captures that proton and it becomes a whole new element, which will be sodium, which also you might know from salt. So salt is made of sodium. So these are all elements we've heard of, but we're working with the nucleus. And then just to remind our listeners one more time, what is the difference between an atom and the nucleus? So the nucleus is just the inner part of the atom without the outside electrons. So the actual nucleus is like 100,000 times smaller than the overall atom. And if you remember, like we used to draw like the middle of the the nucleus as a dot with like the electrons outside of it as like a certain structure kind of looks like the solar system, if you will. So we strip these atoms of all the um, electrons and we work with only the nucleus that is just made up of protons and neutrons. Sometimes they do have electrons 
And then the atom will have a different charge depending on what we're transmitting. This might be a little too technical, but it, it is important for the different experiments that we're doing to know how many electrons this atom still has. Thank you so much, Sarah, for giving us that little bit of insight about what's going on at the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory. Can you tell us a little bit about what SACAR is doing with these capture reactions and why we're measuring them in the first place? Yeah, so SACAR is, like I mentioned in the name, it's called the Separator for Capture Reactions in Astrophysics. So we are mostly interested in studying reactions that are important for stellar explosions like supernovae, X-ray bursts, and novae. How do the reactions that you observe relate to astrophysics? All of these explosions that we see in the sky are actually powered by nuclear physics. So you know that the star, the stars in, for example, our sun is powered by nuclear reactions happening in its core. So we know that other explosions such as X-ray bursts and supernovae are happening because these nuclear reactions eventually either run out of fuel or they go into a thermonuclear runaway and you see these bright bursts of, of light in the sky. Are there any particular stellar explosions that your research will be applicable towards? Yeah, so SICAR is designed to study nuclear reactions that power X-ray bursts. So what an X-ray burst is a burst of X-rays coming from the explosion that happens when you have a neutron star orbiting a star like our sun. So the neutron star is a star made of neutrons that is very, very dense and very, very heavy. So it has a very strong gravity that attracts things around it. So when it's orbiting a star like our sun, it starts to absorb or sort of attract the gas to it, and once that gas piles up on the surface of the neutron star because of all the, temp high, the high temperature and the pressure, it starts forming, it's, this gas is actually very rich in hydrogen, so they start fusing into helium, and eventually once it reaches a critical mass, it ignites this explosion all over the surface of the neutron star, and it creates this burst of x-rays that we see from, um, with our telescopes in the atmosphere, outside of the atmosphere actually, because x-ray bursts cannot go through the Earth's atmosphere. That was a stellar explanation. How does what SACAR does explain what's going on in X-ray bursts? So I don't know if you guys have interviewed astronomers previously in this show, but you should if you haven't, because then you'll get the other side of it. So what they do is they build models to explain the things that they see in the universe. So they might observe a certain X-ray bursts in some direction, another gamma-ray bursts in another direction, but not know where it's from. And so they spend their time trying to figure out what it's coming from. And it's kind of between astrophysics and astronomy and nuclear astrophysics is when we build models on the computer to try to actually build a star on this computer and see what is happening with these nuclear reactions. But to have, to have a model be actually accurate and tell you what is actually going on, you have to give it the correct inputs. And those inputs are not always known. And what SICAR will be doing is getting more accurate measurements of what is actually going on with these nuclear reactions. So like the actual real, or I, I should say a more precise reaction rate for the relevant reactions for X-ray bursts to be used as inputs in these models. So once we have more precise and accurate inputs, we can actually learn about X-ray bursts through these models that we're building. So SACAR is going to help astrophysicists figure out what these inputs are and help constrain their nuclear astrophysical models. That's correct. To remind some of our listeners that are tuning in, what is your thesis about? 
So I'm focusing right now on building and testing SACAR. It's not functional yet for science measurements to like to actually measure these reaction rates. So what I'm doing right now is commissioning each and every part of it. And it's actually a very large system. It is made up of 27 magnets and two large velocity filters. So let me explain a little bit how these work and why we need them. So like I said, you have a sort of like laser beam going through these beam lines and we're making it hit a target made of, let's say, hydrogen gas, and it's capturing something. But the way we do that is we have this, these particles go through these beam lines by bending them using magnets. So imagine how when you're trying to put a magnet up on the fridge, it kind of is attracted to the fridge because that's how the magnetic force works. So in the same way, these particles going through the beam line feel the magnetic forces from these magnets, and depending on how you set the magnets, you can make it go left or right or up or down. And that is what we're doing with SACAR. Through these 27 magnets, we are able to refine our beam and make sure that the only parts we're interested in, which are the products from the nuclear reaction that we just measured, to go through certain selections so that we don't see any noise from different things that might have happened along the beam line, and that so that we can eventually get the products to the end of SACAR where we have detectors that will measure specifically the products that will tell us exactly how much of, let's say, sodium was produced. Cool. So you've been involved with the development from the beginning, it sounds like. Sort of, yeah. Um, I started this project when they were just starting to receive shipments of these magnets, and so that's when I started testing them, and I saw it from come from the ground up. So then what is the current status of SACAR as of today? As of today, the first part of SACAR is fully functional. We have successfully tested it with actual particles of like beam particles going through it, and we made sure that it behaves the way we expect it to. And the next part is to commission the rest of it. So that's about like, I would say almost half of it. And hopefully next year we will be doing actual measurements of these nuclear reactions and just kind of prove that this concept actually works and we can measure them. It's really admirable that you've been around SACAR since basically the beginning and good luck towards the future of him. Now, it seems like you spend a lot of time in the lab, but what do you like to do outside of the lab? Most of my time is spent on outdoor activities. Now, I know in Michigan that doesn't mean much because I don't really like snow, but I've been trying to make effort. So I mostly like to go camping and hiking, and I've been getting into backpacking recently. Are you a part of any organizations here on campus? Actually, my first two years, I was a part of the MSU Outdoors Club, which um, is mostly undergrads. Out of like 450-some students, we were like two graduate students. But it's kind of a shame because it is actually a great resource when you just move here and you don't know anybody. You can take trips with them, and that's how I kind of got started in Michigan. What has been your favorite place to have visited here while you're in Michigan? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I have two favorite places, actually. So I really like Pictured Rocks. Um, it's all the way in the UP. Another one in the Lower Peninsula that I really liked is actually Beaver Island. I really like the beaches there, especially on the side towards the land here. It's really beautiful water and just very calm. I'm curious, what got you into nuclear science in the first place? What actually got me into nuclear science was astronomy. I actually did not take any nuclear physics classes in undergrad. And when I started my physics degree in undergrad, it was mostly to be an astronomer. But then I realized that um, I'm more interested in what's actually happening in the stars than I am in observing them. 
and I actually didn't know that nuclear astrophysics was a thing. But then looking through grad schools, I saw the, the program here and all the stuff they have. And I was like, this is a really cool place. And that's how I just was kind of a spontaneous decisions, decision to move to nuclear astrophysics. When you were younger, before you went into astronomy, did you always know that you wanted to basically observe stars? Funnily, yes, I kind of did. So it's a, I was like the one-year-old that memorized all the names of the planets in the solar system. And I went to my first observatory when I was four years old. So I was, I had my first astronomy book when I was four. So it was um, pretty much something I knew I loved and wanted to do. And I'm really lucky that I got to pursue that. Since you were one year old, you knew that you liked astronomy. And I think that's so awesome. But you switched your career path a little. You went from astronomy now to nuclear astrophysics. Do you have an idea of what you want to do when you graduate? Yeah, so I figured out through working on this project that I really like hands-on work. And I am now starting to actually kind of write the codes that we will do to analyze, that we will use to analyze all the data that we will get. And I'm also figuring out that I like you know, software engineering and all that type of stuff. So I am considering branching out and seeing what opportunities there are in data science related fields where I can use everything that I've learned working on science to solve like real world applications that can help society and make an impact. It's interesting to me that you talk about data science because I like to learn programming for fun. I, I know that sounds kind of nerdy, but it's just cool to learn different things, honestly. And I had that same kind of problem, you know, like wondering what am I going to do because there's so many options out there. What advice do you wish that someone gave you as a young Sarah in high school before you were going into college and thinking about going into astronomy or nuclear astrophysics? I wish someone had told me to start programming earlier, honestly. <laughs> it's great that you do it for fun and we barely got exposure to it in high school and even in undergrad. And I think that Nowadays, this is a really important thing to be able to master for really any field that you go into. And the earlier you start, the easier it becomes. Thanks so much for sharing that incredible research with us, Sarah. I know you got a really busy schedule, and it really means to, a lot to us as well as our listeners to hear about the day in the life of Sarah Ayub. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.